0: Welcome to the Nourishing Autism Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the research on autism and dietary changes, nutrition supplements, and lifestyle modifications. Every week, we break down nutrition topics in an easy to understand way for you to feel less overwhelmed and feel confident on your nutrition journey with autism. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Nourishing Autism Podcast. I'm your host, Britton Coleman, the autism dietitian. And today I had Danielle Zold, the picky eating dietitian and a personal friend of mine on the podcast it's so fun speaking with her because we have such a huge overlap in what we do and the clients we serve. She specializes in picky eating as a whole, where my expertise is more niche niched down into autism and neurodevelopmental disorders. But We have very similar approaches, and we have so much to talk about always. Today, we talked about the picky eating spectrum and diagnoses like pediatric feeding disorder and ARFID. We also discussed some easy ways and resources to help you get started with expanding your child's diet. Danielle is a registered dietitian nutritionist and a certified lactation counselor with a focus on pediatric nutrition and a passion for helping kids eat. She helps parents support their children to grow to their best potential and create healthy relationships with food one bite at a time. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for joining this episode of Nourishing Autism. Today I have Danielle Zold, the picky eating dietitian. I'm so excited to have you here, Danielle.
1: I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Bryn.
0: Yeah, of course. I mean, it's been a long time coming. You and I have been connected for many years now and finally we live in the same place, which is super fun (laughs) and uh, get to collaborate in different ways. So I'm I'm glad to have you here and I know how awesome you are, but I would love for you to introduce yourself uh, so everyone else knows how you serve your clients and what you do day to day.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So
0: I am a pediatric registered dietitian
1: and I work virtually one-on-one with families of kids who are picky eaters and picky eating is really a huge spectrum. And it ranges from normal phases of development to really impacting nutrition and development. And so I help families nourish their kids and find really creative ways to get those nutrients in, knowing that they aren't routinely eating the foods that contain those nutrients in the first place. (laughs) And constipation and some nutrient deficiencies can also lead to poor appetite. And so it ends up being the cycle and it can be a cause of picky eating. So in my practice, I also run tests to make sure that we're optimizing kids' nutrition and targeting their deficiencies.
0: I love it. And we have such a huge overlap of what we do and we just work with families in different ways. So I have been super excited to talk to you because I feel like we can just like go off on the picky eating topic. And you have so much to bring from, I was just saying this, I really focus in on like the autism side, but you really cover like the whole span of picky eating within autism and outside. So I feel like you bring a really great big picture approach to all of it.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I almost wish that we recorded this podcast when we were at brunch a few weeks ago because we were just talking all about these things. And so I think it's great that we're actually recording it now.
0: <laughs> I know. And maybe next time I just need to set up my voice memo. Yeah, right. <laughs> <to go off. laughs> just bring it on the brunch table. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Well, how, so how did you decide to become the picky eating dietitian or even go into picky eating in the first place?
1: Yeah. So I honestly just fell into this area of nutrition. I started working in WIC. So that is the zero to five population. And then I started working in early intervention, which is ages zero to three. And so many parents started coming to me for support with picky eating. It was like the, the chief complaint they're coming to me with. And so I decided to open my practice at that time to support even more families who are struggling with the same issues. And I also realized that there's a huge nutritional component to picky eating obviously these kids are eating or not eating specific food groups, you know, a lot of crunchy beige carbohydrates or eliminating veggies and meat. That's what we see the most common. And so they're getting the same nutrients over and over again and lack of a specific nutrients over and over again,
0: which leads to a huge nutritional issue when you consistently don't get those nutrients in, or you're consistently eating the same nutrients over and over just really limits your variety of absolutely and limits you to how much you're getting of each thing. So Danielle, we were talking about the term picky eating and obviously your business name is picky eating dietitian, but tell me your thoughts on just the phrase picky eating in itself.
1: Yeah. So I, I really don't love the term picky eating because I think that has a negative connotation and I never want parents to call their kids picky eaters because then that kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The only reason that I use the term picky eating is because that is the chief complaint that parents come to me with, and that's what I can help support, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. And there is so much more to picky eating and feeding in general than just kids not eating. (laughs) There's so much
0: more to it. It's so true. I think just the label picky eating, we just put that stamp on top. And when we do that, it's just like, oh, this child is a picky eater. But no, in reality, they have an oral motor issue or they have a severe gastrointestinal issue. And that better describes what's going on for them, not just the stamp of picky eating. Is that exactly, what you're saying? as well?
1: Exactly. Or sensory components too, sensory issues. Yeah, there's a lot more to it. And my goal is to really figure out the root cause of that. Exactly.
0: Do you find that there are any particular issues that stick out? like some of the most common reasons for picky eating?
1: I think you mentioned a few of them already, definitely sensory issues, oral motor delays, but I think ultimately feeding is a really complex process. It's actually one of the most complex things that we do as humans. And so if any of these areas go awry, it can lead to selective eating. We use our nervous system our oral motor skills, like just the ability to chew and swallow can be impaired, constipation or even diarrhea. Really anytime that we don't feel well, we don't wanna eat. And so sometimes we have to address that. And then we also use a lot of our muscles. So the way that I explain this to parents is if a child doesn't have the motor skills, like the core strength to be able to sit up When they're eating, it's going to be really difficult for them to focus on food. So the way that I explain this, I ask parents to envision that they're going out on a fancy date night and they're going to this steak restaurant, right? Steak is a really difficult thing to chew already, but let's say they walk in, sit at the bar because the only seats available are at the bar. (laughs) Stay with me here. And if you're short like me, my feet will kind of dangle a little bit right? So I have to use my core to keep my legs upright and keep myself upright so I can focus on my meal that I'm eating. And so if I had a weak core or weak muscles, then it would be really difficult to focus on the meal that I'm eating. So a strong core and strong muscles are also really important for eating. And I don't think that that's something that people think about very often.
0: Totally. It's so funny. I give a very similar example when I'm trying to get parents to understand the importance of all of that. Because our number one thing that we're trying to do is keep our head up in space to have like proper posture so we can breathe. And feeding will get tossed out the window if we can't properly breathe or can't properly like support our head in space. And I think it's so easy to forget that. And we have all of these like high chairs and different booster seats that. Just don't support that at all. And you're not thinking about that. Parents don't think about it because they're like, hey, this high chair is here, has five star reviews or whatever. Surely it's good for feeding. Maybe it's fine for some kids, but for kids who have low muscle tone, which is I, what the research says is one in three kids on the autism spectrum have low muscle tone. And so if we have low muscle tone and we're already having a hard time chewing, well, then there's no way that we're going to have success if we have something you know, a a chair that's not supporting proper posture at mealtime.
1: Yeah, definitely. And some of those chairs are hundreds of dollars and it's sometimes worth it because they can grow with the child and you can adjust them as the child is growing and it'll give them really good postural stability. A lot of experts recommend 90, 90, 90, right? So hips at 90 degrees, knees at 90 degrees and feet at 90 degrees. So kids are really, really well supported. And that can help quite a lot, but not everyone has hundreds of dollars to throw at a high chair. That's not always a priority. And so there are plenty of things that we can do at home to provide that structure, whether it's taking a diaper box and filling it with rocks or bricks, and you can even wrap it in wrapping paper if you want it to look nice at your table, but you can position your child's feet so that it's at 90 degrees with different size boxes or yoga blocks.
0: I was about to say, I actually had a group call yesterday and we talked about um, making the most of a chair that someone had, they sent in a photo and yoga block. We put at the back, even like to put a little bit more support on their back. We like put a folded up washcloth just to like give them a little bit more support. And then we had a little stool and then underneath the seat that because she was like, I'm worried that it's going to slide around in the seat. And I was like, Just put some shelf liner right there. That's perfect. Because it won't slide or the little scotch. I forget what they're called. Like the little bumpers that you Mm -hmm. can put and it makes it where it won't slide. And Mm -hmm. you can easily upgrade your seat. Might not be like still this, you know, perfect, like trip trap or whatever, you know, but it can take your seat and elevate it and make it so much better if you are saving up for a better chair or if you just need one short term too. Right. Yeah, exactly. Danielle, we have so many of the same recommendations. I'm like, my clients are going to listen to this and be like, oh my gosh, there's two of her. <laughs> because that's a compliment that <laughs> to me. Everything that you're saying, I'm like, I think I said a lot of this on a group call yesterday. So it's just like, I love, because you and I oftentimes like we talk about picky eating, but we yeah. don't get to go deep into it like we do <laughs> now. So I like love you know hearing all of that align. I think that's so neat. So before we hopped on the call, we talked a little bit about different feeding diagnoses. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about this and I'll chime in to mostly pediatric feeding disorder and ARFID.
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think I mentioned this before, but picky eating really is a spectrum, truly. And picky eating is really common. It's a common part of development and many toddlers go through this, especially at the age of one. I see it more often around the age of two but we become more concerned when it's prolonged. And of course, certainly, even though it's a part of normal toddler development, there are still things that we can do that will prevent it from becoming prolonged picky eating. (laughs) But the longer a child has been picky, the more likely they are to need some additional support. And that's where some specific diagnoses can come in. So the first one is called ARFID. It stands for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And this is a diagnosis that the American Psychiatric Association created in 2013. So it's been around for a while. And for a long time, it was the only option that we could label kids who had, let's call it picky eating, (laughs) right? So the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, uses the DSM-5. So this means that only mental health professionals can or should ethically diagnose this. And they actually say that only those who are comfortable giving a diagnosis of bulimia or anorexia are qualified to give the ARFA diagnosis. So it's essentially an eating disorder. The the problem with this too, is that it has a very broad definition and it doesn't include or address feeding skill, which are some of the things that we had just talked about,
0: right? The sensory component, the oral motor, it's huge when it comes to feeding. Exactly. And, you know, I find too, since it was the only diagnosis, I could see it being overdiagnosed because it would be the only option. But then if only psychiatric professionals, are able to diagnose this, then I can also see it being underdiagnosed at the same time. So it just feels like it's just not even in the appropriate space to be able to be diagnosed appropriately and assess all of the feeding skills and development. It's so much more than just uh, mental health behind that.
1: Absolutely. And the way that we treat eating disorders is so different than how we would treat a child who has an oral motor delay, right? Like we would want to focus on strengthening their oral motor skills. And truthfully, I don't know that much about eating disorder treatments. I'm not an EDRD, but I believe that it's a little bit more about reward and bribery and convincing patients to take more bites and eat more. And so it's definitely more different when we're addressing skill deficits
0: versus getting kids to eat. Mm -hmm. It's true. I mean, if you're skipping over skill development and just expecting a child to try a new food and, you know, they're, they're quote unquote, like scared of that food or have a negative connotation to the food but yet can't physically eat the food, you're not going to have success until you address those underlying issues. And then you could, if there is fear behind that food or whatever it may be, then we can address it. But we have to address those underlying issues before we even go into starting to try to get them to just eat a new food for the first time when they're safe. Right.
1: And you and I both take a root cause approach. And so if there's a a psychiatrist who is looking at ARFID, they are not looking at oral motor skill, right? Like that is not in their, their realm either. And so I think what pediatric feeding disorder, which is the second diagnosis that's optional, pediatric feeding disorder really focuses on four different domains. And it really talks about how complex feeding is, right? Cause we know it's, incredibly complex. It is one of the most complex things that we do as humans. And so the four domains that pediatric feeding disorder defines are medical, nutritional, feeding skill, and psychosocial dysfunction. So it is still including that um, psychological component, but it's also acknowledging that it is medical, it is nutritional, and it does include
0: those skills too. Exactly. And pediatric feeding disorder is also fairly common. I was just reading some of the stats that in kids under five, and this is a conservative guesstimate, but one in 37 kids would be diagnosed with pediatric feeding disorder. That's a lot of kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Pediatric
1: Feeding Disorder, just to note, May is Pediatric Feeding Disorder Month, and it was created by Feeding Matters, which is a really awesome organization. Highly recommend checking them out. They also have a great visual depiction of ARFID
0: versus Pediatric Feeding Disorder. And maybe you can link that in the notes. Yeah, I'll link that. I love Feeding Matters. That's actually where I found that statistic. They had linked some research about PFD and the prevalence.
1: Yeah. And so one of their biggest goals as an organization was first to create this diagnosis. And so this is actually a pretty new diagnosis and it came out in October of 2020. So for years, the only diagnosis that providers could use is ARFID. So we probably have a lot of kids who were diagnosed with ARFID because that was the only
0: option that physicians had for a long time. Exactly. It's wild to me that it took that long to get such a common diagnosis it just seems like it just seems crazy to me especially if there's 1 in 37 kids that are experiencing this on a like a conservative scale that it would take that long to get this diagnosis approved
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, and you and I see this on a daily basis. We know how prevalent it is. So, I'm so grateful to Feeding Matters for creating this, and hopefully it'll get a lot more kids the help that they need.
0: Exactly. I completely agree. So, would you say that between pediatric feeding disorder and arfid, what if people are wondering is one more serious than the other? What would you say to that? So, I wouldn't say that
1: one is more serious than the other, but of course, the way that we would address it is very different. ARFID is mainly addressed by a mental health professional and again, is treated in the eating disorder realm and pediatric feeding disorder. Since we are addressing the skill, the skill-based deficit, it's addressed usually by an OT, um, an SLP and a dietitian, usually a team, because they're really emphasizing that it's interdisciplinary and it's complex.
0: Exactly. Uh,
1: In my eyes, the things that they have in common though, is that there are
0: very likely to be nutrient deficiencies and potential growth concerns. Definitely. And that's why having a dietitian on your team can be so helpful because I mean, you need everybody on your team. You need a speech therapist, you need an occupational therapist. And a lot of times I see dietitians get left off the feeding team, which surprises me. Speech therapist and occupational therapist are miracle workers. They're like looking into oral motor dysfunction, all of these other pieces that us as dietitians don't, that's not what we're trained in, mm-hmm. but we're the ones who pick up on nutrient deficiencies, on patterns in the diet, on all of these other nutritional issues that are oftentimes left out. And so I've you know, worked with clients who have been working with a feeding team who have been working on getting fruity pebbles into their diet for six months. And I'm like, but wait, what other nutrients are we lacking in their diet, but what are some other ways that we can build in other nutrients too? And the feeding team was like, Oh, that's an interesting thought. So everyone deserves a space on that team. And sometimes it's all in one place. Sometimes it's also kind of building your own team. If you don't have a clinic or a center that has all of those people all in one place, sometimes it takes a little bit of creativity to bring all of those people together.
1: Yeah. And I actually partner with several feeding clinics throughout the U S and one tool that is in my toolbox is a micronutrient test. And so I'm able to send a kit to the family's house and we can send that back to the lab. We'll find out what nutrients this child is low in. And so let's say they're low in vitamin A. I can go back to the occupational therapist or the SLP, whoever's working on feeding. And I can say, this child is deficient in vitamin A. Can we work on carrots? What are some ways that we can maybe incorporate it into a recipe that this child likes? If they like muffins, can we grate up carrots and put it in the muffin, like a carrot cake muffin? And so I think one of the many benefits of having a dietitian on the team is that we can come up with really creative ways to get these
0: nutrients into these kits so true while paying attention to both the nutritional and then if there are sensory issues which there commonly are and at least the kids that I work with you know sensory issues are prevalent and up to 90 percent of kids on the autism spectrum so that's a huge focus of mine and I mean sensory comes into eating even for kids who are not on the spectrum but I love combining both the sensory component and the nutritional component and finding out those foods that are going to be um, helpful to them in more of the Just one way. So that's always a fun, like creative piece of what we do.
1: Yeah, the way I think about it is feeding therapists work on expanding the diet, and we make sure that they're getting the nutrients and the calories that they need to grow and thrive, really, because childhood is a really critical point of development. I think that's pretty obvious, right? But if it's gonna take them a couple years to or longer potentially to really start incorporating more foods into their diet. We want to make sure that they are getting the nutrients they need now. We don't want to wait,
0: right? That's exactly right. So what resources and professionals would you recommend for families who are looking for more feeding support? If this diagnosis of PFD or RFID or just piggy eating in general applies to them, what would you suggest?
1: Yeah, of course. I think feeding matters is a great uh, starting place for sure, but I would also recommend seeking a professional or interdisciplinary feeding team if you have one in your area that really has an understanding of the intricacies of picky eating. They understand that it's a spectrum, and it really is so complex. And I think sometimes that is overlooked.
0: So true. So Daniel, you work with families privately. You work in contract with many different clinics how can people find you and work with you
1: so there are two ways that families can reach me the easiest is probably to send me a direct message on instagram my instagram is picky eating dietitian or you could also schedule a free 15minute phone call
0: with me on my website and that is picky eating dietitian.com. I love it and we connected initially on Instagram I mean that's where both of us primarily are. So that is definitely a great way to get in contact with you. And I love all of your reels and your posts and they're super informative. So even if people are looking for a free resource, Instagram is just a great place to go for that. It really is. Yeah. Thank you. And you are such a great referral to me because the way that I work is now in online courses and I don't take private clients. And so it's great for families who need a little bit more support, need, you know, that private Piece to it. I mean, you are such a great resource. So I love referring people over to you who need a little bit more support.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And likewise, thanks. <laughs> I send people your autism nutrition library all the time. Yay. It's such a wealth of information.
0: Thank you. I think that it's a nice tool to use alongside feeding therapy to help you explore like different nutrients and different foods, just because it can all be so overwhelming to do it all at once. So, thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, of course. And I'm a member myself. I
1: love the Autism Nutrition Library. I've been a member since the very beginning. I was going
0: to say, you were one of my first members. I remember. Well, thanks so much for being here, Danielle. And I will link all of your information in the show notes so people can find you, but definitely follow Danielle on Instagram at picky eating dietitian and get connected with her because she's an awesome resource. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.
0: This podcast is brought to you by the autism nutrition library, a one-stop hub and community for all things, autism nutrition created to help you explore evidence-based nutrition approaches that have proved to be effective to help individuals with autism feel their best, do their best, and be their best. Join now by visiting autismnutritionlibrary.com or by stopping by my Instagram at autismdietitian. See you next week.